23 seconds. That's the time I spent when I was actually alive with three people on an elevator. And it's led to all this. Just 23 seconds. My name is Tim Kono. I lived in apartment 9A here at the Arconia. Approximately 12 minutes from now, I will be murdered. Hey everybody, Victor here again with Need Some Introduction. In today's episode, we will briefly be covering the season finale of Only Murders in the Building. Pretty straightforward, so that should be a minority of the episode here. But the rest of the episode will be going into Succession, which premiered with its season three premiere just this week, just this past Sunday. So I'll be giving you the background on the show, some of the inspirations for it, kind of my history with the show as well, and then where we left things off with season two, and of course, a recap of this current episode. I'll be adding some additional detail here, or maybe even have a separate mini episode with my wife and Sona when she's available to record to talk about both of these topics. But for now, it's just me. I'm going to skip recommendations right now and get right into Only Murders in the Building. I'll be giving you additional recommendations this weekend in uh, the Horror Corner episodes, which should drop probably Friday. I hope I can make my deadline this time. I'll actually have a whole bunch of horror recommendations because so much horror stuff has come out. Probably be reviewing a couple of those movies, plus giving you recommendations of maybe better movies in line with some of these things that have become uh, recently available. But the rest of that episode actually won't be a another horror discussion. It'll actually be a review of Dune, which is coming out this weekend. The new mega budgeted Dune, which has already opened overseas and uh, is making a lot of money overseas, by the way, and has gotten pretty rapturous reviews since it premiered at the film festivals, but I'm still a little skeptical about it, and maybe it's just bad advertising, but i definitely curious to see it, and I'm sure it will look incredible, which I can already tell from the previews, but I'll see how it works as a film in general. So keep your eyes open for that. It'll be dropping later in the week, over the weekend, potentially, and the usual, make sure you review us, rate us, subscribe to us so that we can find new listeners. Recommend me to somebody else. Recommend our podcast to somebody else if you think they might be interested or you want to just have a conversation about us with somebody else. That always helps grow our audience, of course. And you can always reach out to me at needsomeintroduction at gmail.com. But to get things going, finally, Only Murders in the Building, Episode 10, Open and Shut. All right, so let's cut straight to it. Jan is the killer. Definitely something that would make sense given the evidence that we saw last week. And as a matter of fact, I will pat myself on the back, even though I don't deserve credit for any of this, for having called her out literally the first time she showed up in the show. And I think it was in the very first episode or second episode. And I said to Sona right away, if I had to lay money today at this moment as to who the killer is, it's going to be Jan. Just because Amy Ryan's too big a star to bring onto the show for such a small thing. You're not drinking much. Oh, I'm not drinking at all. I'm taking stage sips. Because there's poison in it. It's what you did with Tim Kono, right? A breakup drink before you shot him with his own gun? I'm still not sure why you poisoned the cat, though. I didn't do that. All I can think is she came in the window afterwards and maybe. I know, right? 
I did the same thing, by the way, when we reviewed, recapped Mayor of Easttown. As soon as Guy Pierce showed up, I'm like, Guy Pierce is the killer. Guy Pierce is too big to be in the show. He's the killer. And minor spoilers, if you haven't watched that show, he was not. <laughs> I won't tell you who it was, though. You should definitely watch that one to find out. But yeah, I'll pat myself on the back because I use the whole generic uh, murder she wrote <laughs> way of solving a crime of just basically looking at uh, who's the biggest name in the not main cast, and that's going to be your killer. So not using any of my knowledge other than like cliches <laughs> to, to solve this. And how happy am I about this I have to say that as much as I have enjoyed the show, I really was hoping for something a little bit better here at the end. I still would definitely recommend the show and I definitely will watch the second season simply because I think the writing is so sharp and so funny. The show was kind of punching above its weight in a way where I thought it was actually bringing to light some interesting real themes. These ideas of people in a city, even people who theoretically would be considered quote unquote successful, who are dealing with this crushing anonymity and loneliness that living in the city can provide. And Sona lives in New York City and I've spent a lot of time in New York City. And I think it's a legitimate thing. Like sometimes you feel like you're surrounded by people and you're alienated at the same time. And these are older people who have kind of moved past the peaks of their careers. And I think these are all interesting topics and I think they're legitimate topics. So this was a very funny gag filled, like sometimes 30, 40, 50 great lines per episode in like a 28 minute episode. So very funny, really, at a, in a way, on its surface, as deep as an episode of 30 Rock, for example. But I thought they were, there was a sense of this real sadness and longing under the show that I thought was a value add. It really kind of elevated the show. And I think maybe my expectations were that high, that I thought that in the end, somehow they would tie all this together. They would tie those themes in and it would be um, really satisfying in that way. As it was, what we mostly got was a kind of classic Steve Martin uh, slapstick episode. For example, even Jan being the killer, she's not just the killer whose heart was broken. She's a serial killer. And then her escape plan is to kill everyone in the building. <laughs> so she is straight up sociopath. And I have to say that I was a little disappointed with that because it seems out of character for her, from, from what we know of her, to be that cold-blooded, I should say. Uh, and simultaneously, that I kind of was vested in this relationship. These uh, older couple, uh, she's not that old, by the way, not nowhere near as old as Steve Martin, for example, who's pushing 80, I think at this point, but this kind of late in life uh, romance between the two of them, I kind of like that. I kind of like that relationship. So it's a little disappointing that this is where we ended up. But uh, as far as the episode itself, it's definitely entertaining. I mean, uh, Steve Martin gets to do his All of Me thing. And there's my recommendation for the week, I guess I would say. Check out All of Me. I think it's available on Hulu, definitely available on Canopy. It's available in a bunch of places. But if you've never seen that, he won Best uh, Actor, a bunch of Best Actor awards, although did not get an Academy Award nomination that year. In 1983, maybe, around there. And it was a movie called All of Me, where he is possessed, has to share his body with Lily, Lily Tomlin is inside of his body with him. And a, a lot of physical comedy, like him basically losing control of his body. And they're obviously referencing that directly in this show where you see him tr been drugged, lost control of his body, basically. And he is trying to escape his apartment and uh, and track down uh, Amy Ryan in the building. And meanwhile, Oliver and Mabel are trying to find him, too. So they're kind of missing each other constantly. And I'm going to be honest here. This is a little was a little s desperate, <laughs> I would say. I mean, he's still a talented physical comedian, but he is pushing 80. So to see him here. 
versus once again check out all of me like what an incredible physical performance he gives they're so funny you know he's obviously 50 years older than he was in that movie and uh, it shows <laughs> so that was a little disappointing one joke that i thought landed perfectly was when he is doing his whole bravos uh, standing up and making his uh, proclamation in his mind <laughs> and then we cut to the reality no no this ends now jan you won't shoot my friends shoot me if you need to but not them because i don't want to live in a world without them anymore there were parts of myself that were dead that they brought back to life before this i was just a hollow shell walking around and they made me alive you're helping me get over you. No! Drugged and has no control over his mouth. Like that kind of juxtaposition was very well done. So that worked really well. Some of the physical comedy seemed a little bit desperate. You know, maybe a little outside his wheelhouse at this point, given his age. Not to age shame anybody. I mean, uh, they put together a really great show. And like I said, late in his career, congratulations. It's been renewed for another season. And that's where we are. I mean, that's pretty much what we get. Except for one big thing. And maybe there is more here, potentially, even in this mystery. Because where they leave things is, you know, they're like the conquering heroes. Everybody's patting them on the back. The show wraps up with, you know, having lost... He's lost his love, of course. But he's reconnected with Lucy... Uh, via text reached out to her again so it seems like everybody's everybody's relationships and everybody's lives are back on the mend uh, this has kind of been a good thing for them but then of course we see the continuation of the teaser we saw at the very beginning of the season where they they're up on the roof basking in their victory they've been reinstated in the building even bunny is on their side now or at least temporarily bunny the co-op board head and as they're basking in their success they hear police sirens coming and they're like wait a second are they coming here they immediately start to try to locate mabel they show up at mabel's apartment and it turns out that the police sirens were a swat team coming to arrest them of all people so we don't even know what they've been charged with we just know that they you know swat team was called in on them when they walk in on mabel we see once again the similar situation that we saw in the teaser to the whole show at the very very beginning the first episode where mabel's over a body she's covered in blood and wearing a hoodie maybe even oscar's og hoodie or maybe not i think there's an emblem on it so maybe it might be part of the um it might be some of the um podcast swag and she's been stabbed in the chest with mabel's handy knitting needle her self-defense weapon of choice and mabel says this isn't what it looks like she walked in like this she's already been stabbed she walked it she stumbled in stabbed already uh, fell upon her and then of course the SWAT team shows up so we're not able to figure out anything else beyond that and as they're walking out we kind of see all the guest stars we've seen this season we see um the podcaster played by tina fey cinda canning and we see detective williams telling them not to say anything probably for their own benefit we see their podcast fans looking adoringly by the way onto them <laughs> maybe impressed that they're involved in yet another murder and of course we see a lot of the tenants in the building that we've seen at those co-op board meetings earlier so two things for the next season and Mabel even calls us out that she's not sure this is over because there's still too many loose ends first of all just to call them out Amy Ryan Jan returns to her apartment two episodes ago before she was stabbed someone leaves a note on her door I'm watching you she's threatened does not go back of course because it turns out she's the killer she's just trying to cover up for herself but who is threatening her 
there's still something more to this story. Second of all, why, theoretically, there is another killer in the building, has now gotten away with everything. Why are they now coming to frame the podcasters for yet another crime? You're just reopening a case. And then why was Bunny wearing that hoodie? Is she a secret fan of the podcast? Is this just another way to further frame them for the murder? Who knows? And that's where we leave things. Like I mentioned, pretty entertaining. But this is, to be honest, that this is the finale of the show when I read this on paper that I thought I was going to get. So in that way, total success, but not more. And like I said, the show actually at some points felt like it was going for more and uh, didn't quite go there. My story really ends with you. Even though I didn't get to know all that went on once I left, a connection was made among three strangers willing to embrace their own messes and to recognize we are all connected. We started with the question, who is Tim Kono? The answer, as it turned out, we are all Tim Kono. That was amazing. I mean, I just, that that's the best performance you've ever given. I have nothing left to teach you. What did you guys think? Let me know. Drop me a line. Need some introduction at gmail.com. For the rest of the episode, we are going to be talking Succession, and we will be primarily covering the show Succession for the rest of this season, along with uh, the new Dexter refresh, reboot, Dexter New Blood, which is coming in about three weeks now. <clears throat> so we will be definitely spending time there. And I think also Sona has been watching you. She's a big fan of you. So she will probably be recapping you to me and to you, the audience, and she'll be spoiling it for me, but that's okay. I, I haven't watched it up until now. I don't think I'm going to get caught up. Maybe she can convince me to um, to watch the show. If I really get into her recaps, maybe I will watch the show and get caught up. But we will probably be talking about you here and there as well, depending on you know her feelings on how the show went this season. So a couple things about Succession. Created by Jesse Armstrong, who's, a, who's British, by the way, who um, probably most famously created Peep Show back in England, which is one of the most popular sitcoms they've ever had. It ran for 12 years. It was very uncommon, by the way, for sitcoms to run this long in the UK. And it is interesting because it ran in tandem with Seinfeld and Friends, more or less, in parallel with those shows. And in a way, if you've never seen it, and it's available, by the way, to stream on a few different platforms here in the US, it's kind of a mix of Seinfeld and Friends. <laughs> so I think that's why Seinfeld and Friends were never really that big in the UK, because they kind of had their own versions of it. And this show, by the way, very funny show, but is in these characters, these two best friends who live together, are kind of like Seinfeld, incredibly unlikable people, but kind of like Friends, it has a lot to do with like their dating lives, trying to make it at work, etc. So it kind of has that kind of day-to-day millennial, I guess at the time they wouldn't be millennials, or maybe they would be millennials, characters, and simultaneously, the kind of cynical city life of Seinfeld, all mixed together. And then he started to veer into more political type material. He, he made um, um, the movie in the loop. I mean, very good movie in general. And it's kind of how the UK almost stumbles into a war because of like one bad press conference. And uh, it's kind of a satire on modern warfare and how it's tied into political egos, something that's a big 
theme in all of his uh, more recent materials. And he followed that up with a movie called Four Lions, which is the first time I ever saw Riz Ahmed, I believe, in uh, anything, which I recommended previously. I definitely recommend this as well. This is a very problematic uh, film, but very interesting, very funny, uh, believe it or not, actually a comedy. And it's about these four kind of down-on-their-luck British characters. Some are of uh, Pakistani descent. Some are just uh, Scottish or, you know, kind of disenfranchised Brits. And they basically form a terrorist cell. And they're uh, this is basically shot like a found footage movie. And they're trying to pull off this uh, terrorist attack. So sounds like it's in bad taste, but it's actually very smart and it's actually very funny and very disturbing by the end, as you would probably expect. So, I mean, almost everything he's done, I would really highly recommend. And then I think, and he says so many different things in interviews, so you're not sure how much of this to take legitimately or not. He supposedly was writing a script about the Murdoch family, Rupert Murdoch. You may know he uh, started off as a Australian businessman. He started to buy newspapers in Australia, mostly conservative newspapers. Then he eventually started to buy tabloids all over the world. He like owns the Daily News, I believe, or um, in New York, but also all the tabloids, most of the tabloids in uh, England, in the UK, and starts to become this uh, newspaper magnate uh, all over the world. He even now owns the Wall Street Journal. But before buying the Wall Street Journal, somewhere in between, uh, he also started to buy uh, not only newspapers, but he started to buy, he bought the Fox, 20th Century Fox movie studio. He bought or created um, Fox, the channel with the Simpsons and uh, and Married with Children at the time when it first premiered and of course has been around for decades now, but at the time was the first new network in, in a very long time. And then of course, Fox News, right? Which of course is maybe the most important development in correlating to succession because uh, the family here has a, a news network called ATN, I believe. And basically, it's uh, the analog of Fox News. It's a very conservative news channel in the U.S. So Armstrong had written a script about the Murdoch family, and it never got produced. But supposedly, this is the starting point for the Succession show. But it's not just the Murdochs. I would say you, there's some literary references here. You can think of King Lear, the Shakespeare play about the father trying to split his land. You know, he's kind of over the hill. He's trying to find a ch one of his daughters to uh, inherit the land. He, and there's this power struggle among the daughters and they betray him. And so it's not one-to-one, -one, but there definitely is some of that in the structure of the show. But um, in 2015, I believe it was, I might be getting the year wrong, but in 2015, I believe it was, Rupert Murdoch was on his son's yacht and was disoriented in the night, was trying to find the bathroom, which is similar to the very first scene we see, not on a yacht in his apartment, but similar to the very first scene we see in episode one of Succession. And as he was stumbling around, had was disoriented, he forgot he was on the yacht, he thought he was in his apartment, he made a wrong turn, fell down the stairs, and fell into a coma, basically. To the public, they said he was fine, but years later we found out that he was in a coma, he had broken his spine. He had broken his hip. He was very, very badly injured, basically. And there was a period of time where it was total chaos. Everyone was thinking, who is going to run this business? And he had had issues with different ones of his children. The children were fighting amongst each other. They weren't children anymore. Of course, these people were in their 40s and 50s, but his offspring. And there are a lot of corollaries to those children. There's one who's kind of wants to go into politics. One of them was a would-be rapper, like a very bad rapper, by the way, still raps sometimes. So that's the Kendall corollary. One's a little hippy-dippy, somewhat out of the news business. They think the news business is toxic for their brand. Um, and of course, this has not happened in the show, by the way, Succession itself, but has happened in real life. As many of you may know, Fox's TV assets and the movies business has been sold to Disney, right? So if you're on Disney Plus now, that's why you can see Avatar on there. That's why you can see The uh, Simpsons on there. 
This is all Fox properties that have now been acquired by Disney at the time for 40 something million uh, billion dollars, which seemed like a lot of money. But in retrospect, maybe not so much when you consider that, for example, just the X-Men and uh, Fantastic Four and these other Fox assets will be merging with Disney's already massive Marvel catalog. So maybe in retrospect, not a bad deal, although it seemed like a lot of money at the time. Uh, so now he's really focused on news. And I believe the stock company is called News Corp. They still own the Fox News. They still own all their newspapers. So they really are news focused and they've split the company that way, which of course was contentious even at the time because there were elements of the family that were saying, we're going to be an entertainment business. Like we're going to hold on to the studio and television and we're going to get rid of news. And the exact opposite happened, right? So obviously internally, there are these uh, family members that are, have very different visions for what's going to happen to those uh, assets or, or wanted them to be a different vision for what was going to happen to those assets. Uh, you know, with Rupert getting older and older, I think he's in his 90s now. So that's <laughs> that's a thumbnail, uh, you know, <laughs> catch up <laughs> with uh, what's happening with the Rupert Murdoch's family. Uh, but I do call out all that detail because um, it does inform the show. It was kind of the framework in which the show was originally created. It's become its own thing since then. Just hearing what I just described to you, you'll probably think like, oh, yeah, if you've seen season one, you know that there's a lot of these themes in that first season. But uh, Armstrong himself has said many times that it's not only about the Murdoch family, maybe that was the original inspiration, but there's been so many familial splits, ugly ruptures. You see it among the Trump family. You see it with the, the CEO of CBS and Paramount recently, who also had the a Me Too scandal as well as a familial scandal. And you see how all these things tie in. So he's just folding in all these things that are happening every day among these corporate elites into this show. But I think that the Murdoch family framework is the foundational framework for the show. So in season one, it really was about, you know, it's set right in the title, Succession. It was about the dad coming up with a succession plan, but not really trusting that his kids are really ready. So it's him always being this really aggressively, almost stereotypically treacherous male CEO. The kind of the, the I mean, there's a generation that really believes that this is the way CEOs should behave and that he is not only he in a way does want the family to inherit the business, but simultaneously he doesn't really think that they should inherit it. He doesn't think that they've earned it yet. He thinks they're too soft. So he has this duality and he can't help but play out these toxic relationships between the kids, which has been have been ingrained in, in them since the very beginning, since their childhoods, basically. Oh, and before I forget, I got to call out that I never skip the, the credit sequence here because the music is incredible. Nicholas Brittell. Nicholas Bertel, who's had an incredible career, by the way, uh, tracked down the New York Times in the daily feed. Look, just search for Nicholas Bertel, B-R-I-T-E-L-L, -L, and you'll see a profile on him. Fascinating story. Started off as a musician, as a hip hop DJ and producer. And you hear it in his scores that there is this classical, and he was a classical musician as well. Then he worked on Wall Street. Then he went back into doing movie soundtracks. He did the beautiful soundtrack to Moonlight. If you ever heard that, incredible. Very classical, though, in there, in that work. He also did the Underground Railroad recently with the same um, director. And if, if Beale Street could talk. But another big partnership he's had is with Adam McKay. Adam McKay actually was one of the producers and um, the director of the pilot for Succession itself. Still the producer on the show. And he did the score for The Big Short, for example. Anyway, all I am to say that the score is excellent. It's really a character in and of itself in the show. And I love this dichotomy it has of the classical instruments, but a real hip hop mentality to how this, 
the uh, music is uh, arranged. So it, it kind of speaks to the tension there. And not only that in the credits, but also this, someone's mentioned this before, not just me, the flashback sequences there of their childhood is very reminiscent of the movie, The Game, their credit sequence there as well. If you watch very carefully, just like Easter eggs in that credit sequence of the tension, the, the, um, the relationships between the siblings, even in those, like who's holding hands, who's smiling. So it's very interesting, very good. And uh, the combination of the visuals with the music is almost like a palate cleanser before you watch the show. It's really excellent, um, really gets you in the mood for, for the episode. So I never skip the credits. So season one, Logan, the patriarch, obviously has problems. He's has dementia. This may have been going on for a while and yet refuses to surrender control of the company. Meanwhile, his eldest, whether he just expects it, played by Jeremy Strong, Kendall, whether he was promised it or whether he just assumes it, he does think he's going to inherit that mantle. But he does have a vision for the company. He thinks that they should buy a BuzzFeed-like business called Volter in this show. I guess it's supposed to be like Gawker, maybe? Although I don't think it's a tabloid, so I think it's more like BuzzFeed. So he, he has a vision for the direction the business should go in. He wants to be more contemporary in the media space. So he has a point, but he's also a screw-up. We, we find out that, I mean, it's not just that he was an addict and that he's fallen off the wagon a couple times, and his brother, his father definitely sees that as a weakness. He also thinks he's a could be a rapper. He you know, kind of has this uh, delusional vision of being this really hip guy. Just remember, I'm not a professional. Born on the north, back king of the east side. 50 years strong, now he's rolling in a sick ride. Handmade suits, raking in loot. Five-star general, y'all best salute. Yo, bitches be catty, but the King Kong daddy. Rock all the haters while we go roll a fatty. Squiggle on the decks, candy on the rhymes. And Logan big ballin' on Hampton's time. L to the OG, dude be the OG. A and he playin'. Playing like a pro, CL to the OG. And, uh, and what's interesting about him as a character, and we'll get circle back to this because it's very pre specific to this current episode as well, is that many times over, Kendall proves himself to look like he is just a suit. He can talk the talk. He knows all the corporate jar jargon. As a matter of fact, he crams as much of it as he can into every single sentence and is excruciating in this current episode when we get to it about how he can't speak a sentence without throwing some jargon in there. So he definitely can speak the speak he's learned from maybe watching his dad and being in those rooms, but it feels like such a put on and he feels like such an empty suit. But then he sometimes is pretty savvy and he can, when he kind of gets out of his way and actually gets serious, he can really make some moves. So he's both things. And I think Jeremy Strong is a really strong, no pun intended, performance as Kendall. And he's really a very, very corner. I mean, it's and he his uh, his performance is central to the entire show, and maybe more so than ever this season. We'll have to see how that goes. But there's a lot of power plays. His family's behind him sometimes. They're trying to make their own power plays, so they're trying to get Dad out. But at the same time, they don't want to give Kendall all the power. So there's all this jockeying for favoritism with the dad. And even when they, they just they just the dad just drops a hint that maybe maybe it's you, maybe it's you, and that's it. That's all he needs to do to blow up the, any kind of partnership between these kids. And as you see this play out now, you have to, I have to anyway, as I watch this, think that this is the toxic dynamic that has been playing out in this family from day one. So that's one of the real fascinating things with the show. It's so well written, and you could just feel. That all this animosity, that when they're on each other's sides, you see them joking about things that happened when they were young. You see them angry about things that happened 20, 30 years earlier. Uh, and then you see how the dad can just just 
turn them against each other with the tiniest little touch and you know that this is the relationship that's been there from the very beginning so all great stuff but season one wraps up with Kendall once again kind of having a real play finally after the whole entire season of trying to get partners in place to really take an aggressive you know uh, to take control of the company from under his dad he really seems like he's about to be able to do it the family's all together for Shiv's wedding even though Kendall and Logan have this um, animosity and there's a lot of strutting around but Kendall finally breaks down does some drugs with one of the workers this young guy working the wedding and there's an accident that waiter that server dies and Kendall goes back to his dad his dad covers it all up but now the dad's like and now you do what I want so the power dynamic has shifted again and it's a really really tragic finale to this first season once again not because these people are good people but you got to feel for Kendall who's trying to escape this toxic relationship with his dad and right back into the fold again so really fascinating finale to that first season and then season two is even stronger uh, we see that the dad keeps needling him with this relationship over the course of it now at this point the the, sh the show is like in a flow state they're just kind of riffing off of each other these characters are just bumping against each other we start discovering things about logan's background we find out that the company's in a lot more trouble than we thought he's doesn't want the kids to know about all these financial problems he makes it sound like i'm just trying to protect you guys but in a way i think he just doesn't want to be weak he doesn't even trust his own kids you know they could turn on him like a pack of hungry wolves you know disloyal to their own pack if they smell any kind of blood and of course the dad speaks to that relationship again the dad cannot show any weakness that's his philosophy so this goes on for a while there's a lot of really funny stuff here with tom and greg just great i haven't mentioned greg yet what nicholas braun what a great and tom as well with just two great performances and they're almost like two versions of themselves like separated by a decade or so they're two buffoons but I gotta tell you Greg in a way in his own buffoonish way is maybe the savviest character here he always finds that opportunity and takes it he might be the real heir to this whole thing and I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up in the control of this thing at some point but to that savviness they start finding out there's a lot of not only financial problems with the cruise lines which is what Tom has been put in charge of because they think it's the amusement parks and cruise lines are kind of like whatever it's garbage but he's put in charge of them they find out that there was financial impropriety and worse than that they find out that there was a bunch of sexual assault allegations that were all covered up some of this per perpetrated by the employees of the company some of them just covered up on the cruises themselves because they didn't want the cruises to have a bad reputation and there's a lot of paperwork saying that they knew all about it so when these stories start coming out there's a lot of exposure and this puts the company in a weak spot again and this means that kendall has an opportunity to partner with logan's one of his you know biggest rivals along with Stewie, who's a character in the background, who's just like a rich, basically it's either Saudi Arabia or an analog to Saudi Arabia, just kind of these big banks or these big funds there that invest hugely into these different uh, organizations. So between Stewie and um, Logan's main rival, there's an opportunity to do something called a bear hug, which is basically like a corporate takeover, an aggressive corporate takeover. And they're using this scandal, you know, as leverage point. And this whole season culminates with Logan basically looking at Kendall and saying he's so weak after this the death of this this young guy and maybe falling off the wagon again and his dad just looks at him with disdain and says you're not a killer you don't have what it takes to be ceo but we need a blood sacrifice as he calls it which means that he needs a member of the family to take the fall and for maybe the second half of the season we really think that logan is preparing to take that fall but no when in the biggest slap in the face of the show it turns out that kendall is the one that logan expects to take the fall it's 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 horrible that i mean jeremy strong once again just the the hurt on his face when his dad basically says you're going to take this fall 
and you're going to do this and it's good for everybody. Just suck it up and do it. And of course, he still has his blackmail on him as well, right? So he knows that. So it's just the worst way that a father could treat his son, to be honest. Someone who has their whole life is ahead of them and, and a young family, you know, the dad is, you know, he's in his 80s, right? Like th this guy's not long for the world. <laughs> By the time the court proceedings are done, he'd be dead. <laughs> but he would rather throw his son under the bus because he's such a selfish prick. And that's where we look like we're going to end season two. And we're like, oh my God, this guy again. But he doesn't. He goes and he comes out and he says, my dad is a toxic person. He knew all about this. And we pick up season three immediately after that moment, after that press conference. So now you're all caught up. Let's talk about season three, episode one of Succession called secession oh greg how's that um i mean oh headline is uh the internet is big uh obviously uh and i haven't i can't i i couldn't read it all but i'm working through i guess um yeah that's 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 the big picture over here at media monitoring is it positive Greg. Super positive. Super positive. Yeah. The negative stuff does tend to stick in the mind a little just because it's quite uh, visceral. But yeah, basically very good. Nice memes, good memeage, and, and uh, so on. So my general impressions of this episode, once again, I mean, this is really a Kendall episode. And it's funny that in the experience of the show, the different siblings really seem to have equal weight. But honestly, didn't even think about it until this moment when I was recapping those first two seasons. So much of this is this emotional journey of Kendall, right? Who maybe took the brunt of the emotional abuse from the dad, could being the oldest. Maybe the expectations were highest that he was going to inherit this thing. And maybe that's part of his addiction problems. And here we are again with this episode. And it's so well done, by the way. The way the show is assembled is so clever. This person and this performance could be so annoying <laughs> if I if it wasn't for the fact that the first time we see Kendall in this episode it's him basically trying to submerge himself into this bathtub whether it's disappearing or a you know a fantasy of a drowning whatever it happens to be this uh, you know, just him just disappearing behind the edge of that empty tub is so important because it tells us that this is what's happening inside his mind even though now for the rest of the episode we're going to see two things one is he's going to be portraying pro projecting this confidence and you see that he's attracted like so many people want logan to go down that he is probably attracting people who are way above his pay grade people who are desperate to get on this right side of history let's say and take down Logan, even though I think that everybody can just see through him immediately. You just see him trying so hard to control the conversation. As soon as he's surrounded by people who might have just a little bit more savvy than he does, he has to kind of try to usurp them. And it's uh, it's such an interesting portrayal. And it's so irritating, like everything he does here, but fascinating, especially when we once again think of that opening scene where he's basically wanting to disappear. So internally, he is still this scared little boy. But externally, he has to portray, and this part of this is what he's been trained to do by his dad. And part of it is just a simple fact that it is the expectation. You don't go and take a shot at Logan Roy in this world and then just tuck your tail between your legs and, and uh, walk away. <laughs> the irony of all that, by the way, is he actually has a power play by keeping his mouth shut, but he can't even do that. And the conversation, this three-way conversation mediated by Jess, a great performance and such a bit role. Even the small players, these are people who are like literally have big roles in other shows who come in for one scene here and there just because they have this, you know, legacy within the context of this show, but also because 
they just want to be part of this. Just want to read these lines, just play these scenes because they're so great. But that three-way conversation between Logan with her mediating between the two of them when he's like saying, I'm too busy to take this call. And yet, you know, he's eavesdropping and even talking in the background. I'm sure his dad can hear all of this. So funny, so desperate. Just Jordan on Kendall's phone. Is it him? Hi. Kendall's uh, just, just attending to some other matters, but I can pass on your thoughts. What? What's he say? Do you want to know? Yeah. Okay, I'll tell him. Uh, he says that this could get very ugly for him. You played a decent move if you were to retract and say that you were unwell and that you misspoke, then maybe there's a deal here. You know what? Tell him legally it's not wise for me to talk to him, but that I'm going to be in contact with the government and that this would be a good moment for him to step down. Okay, he heard. That I'm gonna grind these fucking bones to make my bread. Uh, he says in that case, he's going to grind up your bones to make his bread. <laughs> okay, well, tell him that I'm gonna run up off the fucking beanstalk. Okay, Logan, yeah, he says in that case he's going to run up off the uh, beanstalk. He's kind of laughing, but not like nice laughing. And so great. And speaking of funny and great, that whole car ride, it, the, the, most of this episode is him driving around Manhattan, not having fully th planned this out, by the way, once again, not very well thought out, this idea of him saying, like, I'm going to take the corporate SUV back to the offices. And yet it's like you're driving around in the car. And as soon as you step out of this car, you will not be able to step back into it. And you're not going to be able to go to your office because you have been denied access to your office. So he's not thinking about the fact that he's basically attacking the corporation and he still expects that all his amenities to be in place. So this just shows how short-sighted he is. And he ends up landing one safe haven he has in the city, which is at Rava, his ex-wife's and what a fascinating turn of events here. He has Rava there. He has his new girlfriend there. He has them in the room together. He wants to have this feeling, this sense that he's such an important person and he has these strong women around him. He's trying to hire strong women because, of course, there's some Me Too aspects to this, to this investigation on the cruise lines. So it, obviously the optics are very good to have a woman representing you. But at the same time, he wants to have this sense of himself and part of that is like going back into the fold, looking for the acceptance of his wife. And it's so interesting that here she is, his ex. And she is honestly, when he's saying, well, how do you think it's going to go? She's like, oh, you might succeed. I don't even think she's trying to get digs in on him. Although this might be part of their relationship problem that maybe she always was like this, maybe not as encouraging as she could have been. I just find it very interesting that he's still looking for her, her approval. He still has to have like these women fighting over him, or at least he wants to project that they're fighting over him, or he needs this, this validation. And also fascinatingly that she says, even says to him, congratulations, I heard what you did. He says to her, did you hear the press conference? And she's like, no, like she read the headline, but she didn't even bother listening to the press conference. So even then this isn't even that important to her, even though it should be a huge event. And honestly, it's a huge event for her too, right? Because I'm sure that a lot of her wealth and her success comes from you know, the support she gets from from him. And, and maybe this just speaks to the fact that she's probably exhausted because I'm sure she has heard him probably the 10th or 15th iteration of this attempted uh, takedown of, her, of his dad. And she's like, well, maybe this time it'll work. Hey, 
and maybe she's just being practical about it because I'm sure she's heard Kendall complain about him for her entire lives together, which has been decades at this point. Very interesting. And this is a very, very Kendall-focused um, episode. But even outside of Kendall, we have a lot of interesting things happening, right? We see that Logan is basically trying to jet set, like literally just staying on planes and flying from one country to another, looking for any locations around the world where they don't have a non-extradition treaty with the U.S. <laughs> when, like, the fact that his other children are still basically standing by his side is so funny that if you're on the plane with your dad and your dad's immediate reaction to this press conference is that I cannot go anywhere where there's an extradition treaty <laughs> with the U.S. It's probably not the biggest sign of confidence, but of course he sends the kids right back to the belly of the beast, not all of them. Tom stays behind. I'm sure that Tom stays behind not because he actually values Tom's input, it's because Tom knows where the bodies are buried. And I actually didn't mention this during the, the recap of season two, but very importantly, Greg and Tom. Tom was put in charge of the cruises and amusement parks. It was considered unimportant. The scandal now is coming from there. Tom was supposed to destroy all of the evidence that implicated the family, their awareness of these problems. Tom didn't want to do that work, thought it was beneath him. He offloaded it to Greg. Greg was smart enough with consultation from, I believe his mom, to not destroy everything. He made copies. It's pretty funny that he made copies and destroyed the files. <laughs> he made a copy of the files and shredded it. So he just when realistically, he could have just shredded blank pieces of paper and kept the original documents in those storage lockers. But hey, whatever. He copied them and shredded them simultaneously. Maybe double work, but regardless. And he has them stored somewhere in the city so he is the linchpin to this whole thing. If he now in the next episode or so decides to tell Kendall, I have all these papers, it can take down the family and Logan specifically, and maybe set Kendall up to be the next CEO. If on the other hand, Greg leaks this to somebody and goes to the highest bidder and tells Logan, hey, look, I have these papers, I can destroy them. And maybe this is the loyalty to Tom. Maybe this becomes a leverage for either Tom or maybe even Shiv to take control of the, the, the company. So this is a huge part of this. And once again, Greg is in the middle of it. So Greg, who's just this loser who just popped up randomly because he needed to uh, get bailed out yet again for getting high on the job back all the way back in season one, is now a major player in this whole drama. The other big thing that happens here very, at the very end, of course, we actually get a CEO, interim CEO, and they decide it's better if it's a woman. And when Shiv doesn't come through with her friendship, getting a kind of like a liberal stalwart lawyer on their side to represent. Turns out not only did she not get her, friendship didn't actually pull enough weight. Turns out she's worse than that. She's working for Kendall. Logan sees this as a big sign of weakness and he's always testing Shiv for some reason. You know, there's an indication that maybe he thinks she's the one best for this. And yet, I don't know if it's his sexism or if it's the fact that her politics are more to the left of his, supposedly. That's a big question mark as to whether that's true or not. But regardless of the why, he doesn't seem that he's really going to ever give her the power. But he does think that the optics are good to have a woman there. So Jerry ends up getting it. And honestly, Jerry almost looked like she was going to get this thing last year. So it's kind of a natural conclusion to that. Of course, we had this whole strange, almost relationship, almost sexual relationship. It's a sexual relationship on, <laughs> on Roman's side. I don't know if it's a sexual relationship or any relationship at all on Jerry's side. Remains to be seen. But Roman is turned on by Jerry. Roman apparently is asexual. This is maybe the only person in a very long time that he has had sexual affinity for. And he's kind of fixated on her. And this seems to be not only some kind of perversion on his side, it seems to be legitimate. He does pitch Jerry over himself. 
Roman is actually, maybe unbeknownst to himself, he's near the top of the list of getting that role. As soon as she put, he puts Jerry, says, well, maybe Jerry would be better than me. The second that happens, once again, Logan sees it as a sign of weakness. He's immediately out. He's out as a contestant. So it's Jerry for now. But Jerry's very savvy. Not only is she very, she's very political and she's always looking to maximize her gain, but she knows how to play all the angles. So I'm curious to see what happens with her and with Frank. You know, Frank is desperately trying to maybe step in there. Logan's having no part of it. He does put his name in there anyway. And when Shiv finds out that Jerry's the one who got the role, she is furious and she says, you know what? I'm going somewhere else. So question mark, where is she leaving at the end of that episode? I think she's meeting with Kendall. Is she going to collaborate with him or is she just going to have an open conversation with him about the state of affairs? Not sure, but I'm pretty sure she's headed to see Kendall. Roman is trying to further align himself with Jerry, who's going to be interim CEO. And part of this is his affection. Part of this is a power play. The two things are just happen to be in line with each other. And that's where we are heading to next week. Beyond that, there is just so many great lines here, whether it's Greg talking about how he can't read the whole internet <laughs> or talking about how the sentiment on the internet seems to be positive overall, but the negative ones really stick in your mind. <laughs> Isn't that the internet in general? Anyway, but it, it, it is great. So Greg has so many great lines here. The, the three-way conversation I mentioned with Kendall, uh, great, so funny. Um, and Roman has some great, uh, you know, shivy, shivy, shiv. <laughs> you know, his little song he comes up with uh, taunting his sister. Pretty funny. So a lot of great stuff here. Uh, what's his name? I can't remember his name now, but uh, that lawyer that's always around, that the fact that he's desperate for a sandwich, <laughs> he's got to get a sandwich. They're about to get on a plane. He's like, he doesn't care. He's hungry. He needs to get a sandwich. So just all these little character details are great. And uh, and that's where we are. If I have a criticism, I've heard uh, you know, mostly unanimous praise. I mean, I think that the fa- people who are on board with the show are 100% on board at this point. And of course, the critics are loving it. The critics have seen the first seven episodes. I've only seen the first. I do not get access to these screeners. I'm not an actual critic. <laughs> I just do this as a hobby. But uh, people who have seen it say that the show is great this year. It's like highest rated season so far by the critics. And like I said, the critics have seen most of the episodes. So they've probably seen the shape of the season. I would say at this point, not knowing what that shape of the season is, I'm sure there's spoilers out there. I am not going to get spoiled at all. I'm sure it's all out there, but I'm not going to look for it. I'm going to try to go week to week. I like to digest the show slowly. I don't want to binge it. Unlike something like Squid Game, which I loved, but I binged the whole thing in about a day and a half or so. This one I really like to savor. I might even rewatch it um, again just, uh, before the next episode. But I would say on a negative side, and I've heard a little bit of this on the internet as well, and I agree with this, is that I really do feel like we are resetting again. This is maybe the third time in the show where we're kind of resetting that first it was his dad's stroke, then it was the breaking of the scandal initially, and then they were able to renegotiate some finances uh, to prevent this bear hug from happening. And then, of course, now the scandal has now weakened. Logan has basically leveraged to buy a bigger part of the bigger stake in the company to prevent this bear hug from happening. But now those creditors are basically saying, we don't have confidence. So you know, you're going to have to pay us back, which means that you won't have enough stake to control the business. So the bear hug now is totally in play again. We're back at, and it really does feel like we're resetting over and over and over again. And the stakes keep getting higher right now at this point, like Logan literally can end up in jail at this moment. That's why he's flying all over the world trying to uh, escape extradition. So the stakes keep climbing, but it seems like we're seeing the same thing at a higher and higher rate. So I do think that at the end of this season, by the end of this season, the stakes have to change, right? Like something has to happen where the businesses get split. There has to be some kind of internal competition. Maybe there's different factions are running the business together. And now we can see how these different components of the business are at each other's throats, spreading blame, 
competing for funds, competing for prestige. Something like that has to happen because I, I don't think we could just end the season again and be like, and Logan's on top and he you know pushed uh, the family's buttons and they're all back in their holes again. And the next season, some other drama will throw everything back up in the air and we'll just start over and over and over. I think at that point, it would become tedious. For now, I'm on board. I, I just love watching this family dynamic. So I really do kind of save that judgment for the end of the season. I'm aware of the criticism and, and I feel it myself, by the way, I kind of feel like my wife even said it, her momentary, her quick recap of this after she watched it was, so we're kind of back where we were before. She still enjoyed it, but I have the same feeling that we're kind of like, okay, so now we're back to, you know, each season, <laughs> we're at a point where there's this breaking point where uh, is Kendall going to get control of the business or not? And I honestly don't think Kendall's going to get control of the business. I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen. But at the same time, I think that the stakes of the story have to change by the end of this season. And I do think they will, by the way. I think that they're aware of the limitations of this um, repetitive structure. So I do think we're going to see that. And uh, I'm very curious to see what happens next. Uh, you know, you see the coming up uh, at the end, if you watch the coming uh, episodes. It's not for the next episode. I think it's for the rest of the season. They kind of preview. And it does look like there's going to be some pretty interesting dynamic changes between enemies and friends and frenemies throughout the season. So I'm curious to see how all those dynamics play out. And I have a lot of confidence that they're going to uh, take the show in a satisfying direction. Either way, I'll always love Greg's one-liners. <laughs> and there's plenty of them. So that's it. That's my recap for this episode. I will probably have some bonus content, be interviewing Sona and my wife. Any additional material they provide, I'll be appending to this episode, most likely, unless it goes really long, then I might actually put a whole separate episode. But I'll probably just append it here and I'll uh, repost with notes if that's the case, if you want to come back and check out to see if there's any additional conversation here. But overall, really enjoyed it. Looking forward to next week. Make sure you follow us. Uh, remember, this weekend I will be dropping some horror recommendations plus a full review of the movie Dune. Very much looking forward to that. I don't know if I'm going to like it or not, but I'm very interested in seeing how it turned out. Until then, I'll talk to you soon.